Hey, fanboys and fangirls, it's your host, Aaron Broverman. Just wanted to let you know that if you missed Harry Tarantula's moving sale out of the downtown, Leon is doing it again, but this time at Anime North, Toronto's largest fan-run convention. Anime North runs from May 25th to 27th at Toronto Congress Centre, so find their table and uh, get 50% off on Friday. On Saturday, it's buy one, get two free. And then on Sunday, he's bringing back the buy by the pound insanity. This time it's $10 a pound. So find their table at Anime North at the Toronto Congress Center, 650 Dixon Road in Etobicoke, and tell them Aaron sent you. You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum. Hey, fanboys and fangirls, welcome to another very special episode of Speech Bubble, because we are live! Let me hear you! We are at Harry Tarantula Games and Comics at 6979 Young Street in beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada, celebrating their 25th anniversary. You're hearing us on the Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. And with me today, we have a very special guest. He's written The Mighty Zodiac. He's written comics based on... Batman Brave and the Bold. He's written Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, Archie, Simpsons comics, and you might know him best from Teen Titans Go. Please welcome writer Jay Torres. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming. Happy anniversary, Harry Tarantula. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Thanks for being here, Jay. You're in a very unique spot because we don't have many guests that are um, mostly known for children's comics and kids' comics, so I hope to get into uh, that with you a little bit as we start. But before I get into your work, I just want to start at the beginning. I know that you were born in the Philippines, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And then you eventually moved to Montreal. What brought you from uh, the Philippines to, to Montreal? Uh, how did your parents uh, immigrate? Um, it was it was during the era of uh, the Marcos regime, Marcos dictatorship, and there was threat of martial law. This was like in the early 70s. And uh, my parents thought, while we could get out, why don't we get out now? I had relatives in, uh, in Montreal already, some relatives in California as well. But for some reason, my parents who grew up in a tropical island decide to come to Canada in the middle of winter. I don't know what they were thinking. Even especially because then they had the choice to go to San Diego where my aunt was. But that was the choice they made and you know, I'm pretty thankful for that. I mean, I, I love I love living in Canada. I love being Canadian. I much prefer to uh the alternative that could have been. Especially right now. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's what you what people call fate and, and that's how that's how I ended up here. It's awesome. So how did comics first come into your life? My dad was a comic book reader. We had comics around the house all the time, as far back as I can remember. 
I grew up in the era where you could go to the corner store and pick up comics for like 50 cents, 40 cents, or whatever it was at the time. So it was pretty easy to, to access comics. And uh, yeah, like I said, my, my dad used to read comics on the John. And he used to drive me nuts because he had his books and I had my books and he would take my books sometimes into the bathroom with him and drove me crazy. What kind of uh, stuff did you collect as a kid? Um, see, because because we got the stuff at the corner store, there was it was like a crapshoot. You never knew what would show up. And even, you know, the regular monthly titles, sometimes they'd skip an issue or two. Because I think it was pretty random. The distribution was random. There was no rhyme or reason for it. This is before the direct market and yeah. the comic shops. Yeah, and it's just like magazines. They, You know, the the local corner store will get a pile of magazines and they just put them out, whatever, whatever's delivered. So I picked up whatever was there. And most of it was either Marvel DC superhero stuff, unless they ventured, you know, outside of those genres or that genre or the Archies. That was pretty much all there was. Maybe there was some Harvey comics. I don't know if they were publishing back then. I might be confusing different eras, but that's basically it. Archies or superhero books. And, at the time, so like early 70s, mid 70s, I watched the Super Friends and like Isis and Shazam. Oh, that's awesome. So all that stuff. So I was I was very much into the superhero thing, and of course when I looked for uh, comics, that's what I would find. On the other hand, growing up in Montreal, you know, Montreal being a very European, you know, francophone city, comics and bande dessinée and and uh, graphic albums were not uncommon in libraries so even at school we had things like Tintin and Lucky Luke and Asterix so I read those in French as well so yeah I got a really pretty good mix at the time which was really nice was it interesting like being like bilingual and being able to you know sort of speak French and you know it was just what it is I didn't really you know think I didn't really consider how lucky I was to be able to access um, these European comics the way I was able to because I have friends who grew up in Ontario, grew up in the U.S., and all they saw were the American comics that you got at Seven Eleven or, or the mom and pop shop, right? Um, so we were lucky in that sense. But in terms of you being a writer for comics, you were an ESL teacher first, right? Yeah, at one point, yeah. Right, right. So how did you go from that to, uh, I want to do comics uh, Well, since uh, since college, I, I'd been trying to break into comics, and I'd actually you know, published a few smaller stories and um, independently published comics that made absolutely no money whatsoever. So I still had a day job. And uh, teaching ESL allowed me to sort of take, I wouldn't call them shifts, but take different classes and teach as much as I could during the day. And then at night I would do my writing or I do my pitching. And as I got more and more assignments, I would cut back on my teaching hours. And then eventually I was able to cut back 100% because I was able to work full time as a writer. Was the copybook tales the first graphic novel that really took off for you? Um, it was the first thing we ever got professionally published. That actually started out as a mini comic that my friend Tim Levins, who's the artist of the book, and I did ourselves. You know, we'd go to Kinko's photocopy the, uh, the story and fold them in half and staple them ourselves and go around to stores and put them on consignment, including Harry Tarantula back in the day. Uh, we would put them up for consignment. I think there were 75 cents or something like that. And the store would get, you know, 30 cents or whatever. And we'd get the 45 or whatever it was. Um, and that was the start because, you know, you build up an audience that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, we would also send those mini comics to editors and publishers hoping that somebody would see something and, you know, make us an offer or give us some kind of a publishing deal, which actually happened with uh, SLG Publishing in San Jose. Um, But like I said, you know, it was a black and white indie book. I think the print run was maybe 
two or three thousand copies at the time. Um, so we didn't make any money, but it was it was a start. And it was ironically because it was like art imitating life because it was about people trying to break into comics, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was pretty much uh, semi autobiographical about myself and Tim trying to break into comics as a writer and as an artist, and. Uh, you know, the sort of ups and downs of that. But we also, part of the, I guess, the appeal of the copybook tales was that we had flashbacks to the 1980s growing up in high school, and there was a lot of nostalgia in it. And that's sort of what the hook was for the book. Mm-hmm. And it's also what, I, mean, I tell people this a lot because it's very important. One of the things about that book that was crucial to my career is that the fans, or some of the fans, because there weren't very many, uh, who who actually picked up the book would later go on to work in comics. So Dave Roman, who read the comic when he was, I guess, in his early 20s or whatever it was, would later go on to intern at DC and then work as an editor at Nickelodeon, and he'd end up giving me work. C.B. Sobolski, who everybody knows from Marvel, he's like a talent coordinator. I think now he's in business development, but he was one of the fans of that book. And when he started out, you know, he, he would call on the people that he um, he read and liked, and that's how you know you start getting. I started getting work. That's amazing. Like, how do you feel about being sort of the person who like inspired some people? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, but there would be no uh, Tokyo, no Shanghai Disney if it wasn't for me because <laughs> I think he's like overseeing Shanghai Disney or something crazy like that. Yeah, yeah. By the Marvel stuff over there, which is amazing. That's crazy. And C. B. Sobolski, like he also shepherded a lot of the local Toronto comic talent that's working. He did, today. and I'll take a bit of credit. For you know, for introducing some of those guys, there was a really happening scene in Toronto. I mean, there still is. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like a mecca now, right? But back then, there were so many of us who were trying to break in. And if you look at, you know, Marvel and DC and, I mean, all over the the entire uh, comic book publishing spectrum, they're like Canadians and a lot of them were from that, that group in that era. Mm-hmm. What made you want to pursue comics as a profession? Good question. I don't know. I, I you know, I can trace back... I guess the barg or the the one sort of defining moment to the third grade, believe it or not, I wrote Andrew this comic strip for the school paper, and it was just a really silly little um, strip about a bowling ball who had trouble with some stubborn pins. So it was it was the height of uh, comedy in the third grade. Uh, but the reaction to it was so so nice and so good that I think it sort of stroked my ego enough to make me think, yeah, maybe I could do this. Uh, you know, and I knew that people were, were, were making comics as a living, you know, people like Charles Schultz and, you know, I was going to say Jim Davis, but I didn't really like his work a lot. But anyway, a lot, you know, a lot of the comic strip guys whose work would eventually be collected in, in book form, uh, were people that I admired and looked up to. So I knew that there were people making comics even at an early age. So I guess that kind of started things. And I remember I was about 12 years old. Chris Claremont and Paul Smith came to sign at a comic store in Montreal called Captain Quebec. It was my first experience meeting comic book creators. Wow. And uh, it was, it was, I guess it was very, um, I mean, inspiring, I guess. I, I, I didn't really think of it in those terms back then. I actually figured out the story of the Dark Phoenix fantasy, um, plot line, and I tried to get Chris Claremont to admit that I figured out what what was happening but he wouldn't <laughs> but uh it was great meeting them and and i remember seeing them on the news that night with my dad watching the news and he looked at them and they looked kind of like a couple of hippies and he looked at me and goes you want to grow up to be like that <laughs> oh, and i was man. like yeah i think oh, but anyway it was just it was just a funny moment and my dad was pretty was pretty supportive throughout but i think the uh, image of these two like long-haired you know dudes sitting behind a table made him kind of think twice so did you did you go for any training or were you completely self-taught? Well, I mean, the thing is, back 
many moons ago, there were no um, comic book scripting classes or, or even sequential art classes. Uh, in fact, that kind of stuff was kind of frowned upon um, at art school and animation schools and that sort of thing. But I did, I mean, I have an English degree, so I took uh, playwriting classes, actually one playwriting class, and uh, a couple of screenwriting classes, some journalism. So you kind of learn along the way. And because this was at a time where the internet was um, kind of blowing up and people were starting to get their first email accounts and there were all these message boards and whatever, you know, I was able to, to get copies of Alan Moore scripts, Warren Ellis scripts, you know, other people, Dwayne McDuffie scripts, and you could kind of see how people piece these things together. And eventually people started publishing you know, how-to books. But by that point, I'd already sort of established my own, you know, format and whatever and just kind of went with it. So I know that, like, artists have sort of more of a route for breaking in because they can, like, share their portfolio and take them to cons and, you know, people from the big companies can sort of review their their work and stuff. But for writers, it's a little bit harder. You sort of have to prove that you can tell a sequential story. So how did you break in and what was the challenge for that? Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, it's gotten definitely a lot harder now just from looking at how things are working and talking to other, you know, to other writers and young aspiring writers as well, how much harder it is. And plus there's more competition, you know, back in the day, I, I, you had to go to New York, you had to go to San Diego or somewhere to meet an editor and basically convince them to give you a shot. Um, that's a lot easier when you're an artist because you open up your portfolio and they can see how well you do. If you're a writer, I mean, they used to read scripts and they used to read pitches, but these days it just nobody has time for it. They've sort of phased out submissions editors and those kinds of things. And basically, the editors who probably, uh, sorry, who work on the, the monthly books, the daily grind, you know, when they have time, they'll look at pitches. And for the most part, a lot of them don't have time. And that's why you, you hear about a lot of guys breaking in because some guy dropped the ball and they needed an artist to, to pitch in at the last minute. So someone pulls someone's portfolio from a slush pile, calls them up, are you available? Can you get this done in two weeks? And that's how they kind of break in, right? So for writing, <laughs> you, you can't do that, right? right? It's not like, can you write this right? You know, they have the script already. So basically, you have to cut your teeth somewhere else. It's like trying to be an actor, you know, doing local dinner theater or community theater or trying to start your own band and, you know, playing the high school concert, uh, high school dance or, or someone's wedding and then hoping to sort of expand from there. Right. It's the only way to do it. These days, too, I mean, I mentioned that we did a mini comic. Uh, these days, a lot of people do web comics. Um, I still see people doing zines and mini comics, and there's this amazing thing called the internet where you could advertise so easily and get the word out and get people to, mm. you know, to send you money to to get copies of your book. And we had to go door to door and knock on comic stores and say, "Would you carry this for us?" You know. So people that ended up making it big in comics, like C.B. Cebulski, like reading your self-published comic. Is that what brought you in to, to Marvel and DC and those yeah, sorts eventually, of Yeah, eventually, because, I mean, after Copybook Tales, we did, like, Jay Bone, who's another local cartoonist, did, he and I did um, Alcindere at Oni, which is what got the attention of uh, Tom Palmer Jr., who was my editor on Teen Titans Go. Like, he had read it, liked it, and thought we needed somebody with that kind of, you know, young fun sensibility to write this book. So well, and you, you won an Eisner for Alison Dare, right? Oh, we got nominated. We didn't win. Okay. We got nominated. But uh, yeah, we are official Eisner losers. Okay. But it's always nice. <laughs> it's nice to be nominated, as they say. That's awesome. So 
you're known more for writing um, kids comics. How did you get into that, and uh, who keyed in on that sensibility for you? I, you know, I didn't plan it. It just sort of my wheelhouse, and most of the stuff that I write ends up being what you call "quote unquote" all ages. You know, and nowadays, you know, people sort of point to stuff like Disney or Pixar as kind of that all ages, all family kind of thing. Hey, Robin. Robin just showed up. Boy, <laughs> yeah, we have a Robin in the audience. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's how it kind of happened for me. I just happened to be the kind of person that wrote a lot of all ages or general, you know, general audience material. Not that I, you know, I didn't write for adults. I mean, I've written horror stories. I've written romances and that kind of thing. But I always fall back to the all ages thing. And that's what people seem to know me for. And editors kind of give me a call and, you know, and it, it kind of spread outside the comic book industry into like the Canadian publishing industry and even to an extent American magazines and, and uh, newspapers and stuff. So people would find out that I did that kind of stuff or they'd read it and then they'd give me a call and, and I get work. So what's different about writing for adults and writing for kids? Like what kind of process do you have to have? What kind of mindset do you it's need? The, it's, it's the same. Uh, I mean, for me, it's not like... You know, I, I, I change my clothes and if I'm writing a horror story, I'm wearing gothic outfits or if I'm going to write a kid thing, I put on a pair of overalls or something. It's just, it's just the, the process is the same. The script format is the same. It's just the content and, and the subject matter, the themes, that sort of thing that's different. Um, I will say though that sometimes it's hard for me to switch gears. Like if I just finish writing, you know, a bunch of Archie stories and I have to do a short story, a horror story for uh, Dark Horse's Eerie Anthology or whatever. I might have to stop and go do something else. Maybe watch an episode of American Gothic or, you know, Twilight Zone just to kind of get in that headspace again. But in terms of the actual work and, and, and what I do, it's, it's pretty much the same. That's awesome. And you also do a lot of comics that are based on, like, actual existing shows, like Batman Brave and the Bold, Teen Titans Go, yeah. WALL-E is, like, a movie. So, is it different when you're writing for, like, an existing property? Do editors put more pressure on you to stay within, sort of, the Bible of that um, show? Or? Well, you have to do it. You have to stay within that universe in certain parameters, for sure. Okay. Uh, I've been lucky because... You know, even though I haven't done a lot of license work in, in, in a while, but when I did a whole bunch, I was lucky enough to do to work on properties like Teen Titans Go where they left us alone, mm -hmm. and they pretty much let us do what we want. So we got to sort of establish our own rules and move in and out of the, the animated series as we wanted to, bring in characters from the DCU as we wanted to. So that was great. And even with WALL-E, which, which my editor and I decided to do as a kind of um, silent Looney Tunes kind of story, like, nobody told us we couldn't or couldn't do that. The only thing that we couldn't do was, like, a direct sequel or... I think it was... Yeah, I think that was the only rule. Don't do a sequel. We had to do kind of a prequel. Something to that effect. So, very little, you know, rules and, and, and sort of uh, constraints. So, I've been lucky that way. But, of course, you know... If you're writing the Teen Titans Go Robin, there's certain things you can do with him that you can't do with the DCU Robin. Or even like the Batman and Batman Brave and the Bold, who might break out in a Batusi. Like, I couldn't do that in Legends of the Dark Knight, of yeah, course, yeah, right? Yeah, because Legends right. of the Dark Knight is like more... Like, yeah, it's a more... Adult yeah, horror type or just more, At least it's more of the, you know, mainstream DCU, right. grim, gritty Batman. It's not the one that'll break out in a dance or whatever yeah yeah it's, it's it's really interesting like how how you can switch gears that's that's a big talent i also read that you worked a lot on like the the degrassi 
comics and well, the yeah, Degrassi webisodes. Were, well, I did. They we did four graphic novels. Okay. Uh, this is about seven, eight years ago. Yeah, because no, more almost ten. Because I, I the first one I wrote, I actually wrote on my honeymoon. <laughs> which was because <laughs> it was one of the, it was the biggest gig I had gotten at that time, so I couldn't say no. My wife or my fiance at the time, my wife now, was fine with it. I mean, she, you know, it was a big deal. So, however long we were on the plane, I was writing, and once we landed, I was writing whenever I got a chance because I couldn't say no. Right? I mean, this is a big deal. Uh, the Degrassi graphic novels were among the first if not the first comics that were ever advertised on Canadian television. Wow. So that was a big deal. And plus, we were working with, you know, CTV, Epitome Pictures. I got to go on set. I met Drake before he was Drake. Yeah, do you have a Drake story? Actually, there's, the only one I have is I was sitting in an office of in the office of the uh, creative director of Epitome Pictures, and he came walking by, and uh, Chris Jackson, who was the director of the uh, business development, I can't remember, or creative director, he had uh, sketches of the different actors and characters in the graphic novels posted up on his window and you would walk by his, his window in the hallway and I, s- I remember seeing Aubrey Graham aka Drake yeah. walking by and then he kind of caught you know out of the corner of his eye caught his image and he stopped and turned around and looked at it and he you know had a really funny reaction and then just kind of walked off <laughs> but the, oh wait one other story I have about Drake I forgot um, so you mentioned I did the webisodes. Yeah, you did the webisodes, like animated. It was like animated version of. Actually, there were two animated webisodes which nobody actually saw. But I also did um, four, five, or six live action, three minute short films that we did starting the Degrassi characters. They were mostly parodies. So like we did a Napoleon Dynamite parody. We did a parody of The View, and then it was a kind of a futuristic four parter that I did. Anyway, so one of them was a Bring It On parody. You know that uh, cheerleading movie. Yeah, and we flipped it so that the boys were were the cheerleaders, but they were auditioning. So Drake's character was one of the ones. Jimmy, he was he was the wheelchair bound kid. He uh, auditioned. So I had a script for him, mm-hmm. and uh, he you know he wheels himself into the gym, and he just totally ignored the script and just ad libbed his lines the whole time. Yeah. So I was like, wow. This guy's got balls. No, <laughs> no, but so he totally ad libbed, and then, you know, ten years later, and he can, he basically can own me now. You know, that's awesome. He can buy and sell my whole family if he wanted to. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, that was my Drake. And I, oh, I also remember this is going to be like the Drake hour. <laughs> I also remember the day he came back, and he, so we were on set. He had opened for somebody. I want to say Ice Cube, but I might be misremembering. But he opened for somebody, and we and Chris Jackson again, my friend who was the creative director, asked him how it went, and he said, "Oh man, it went really well." And Ice Cube was um, was impressed, or whoever he opened for was really impressed. I think I think we're going to be, I think we're going to do well. We're going to do fine with this with this new album or or EP that he had recorded. And then you know, I was like, "Oh, that's cool." He walked off, and we Chris and I both looked at him. That's so cute. <laughs> he thinks he can rap. That's so cute. <laughs> yeah, flash forward 10 years later. Yeah, that's awesome. That's yeah, cool. Yeah. So you're also working on the Mighty Zodiac, which I think is interesting because it's it's based on like the Zodiac animals. Like the Chinese the, the Zodiac. Chinese yeah, Zodiac. Yeah. So you ha- it's sort of about another culture and stuff. So do you have to be sensitive to that culture when you're, when well, you're doing, I mean, characters? I'm Filipino and, and I, I have Chinese ancestry as well as, you know, Hispanic and Polynesian. We're like a real mix as far as borrowing from other cultures and, and, and sort of appropriating certain imagery. I think as long as you do it respectfully, you're not being, you know, a clown about it. You're not trying to insult anybody. It's not like just some, 
you know, thing you do on Halloween. Mm-hmm. You know, this this story, despite being um, about warriors and fighting and battles, it's actually about a surrogate family dealing with illness. Uh, if you look at what it's about, not not who's in it and whatever. So, and you know, you look at it on the surface and you think, oh, it's like Kung Fu Panda or Saga Yojimbo. But I like to think that there's heart to it. There's a moral center to it. And it's fun. And people are, you know, I mean, people, animals. Animals are killing each other and, you know, shooting arrows and, and, and <clears throat> sword fighting. But at the same time, it's about a family whose, you know, dad or whose master is, is dying of a disease. And they're trying to, to save him. Since you're known uh, for Teen Titans Go, I wanted to ask you, because Cyborg is a prominent character in the Teen Titans, and now he's sort of graduated to the Justice League, and he's going to be wider known by everybody and their grandma because of the Justice League movie, how do you feel about someone, a character that sort of goes from the Teen Titans to the Justice League? What are your impressions of seeing him in the Justice League movie at, at this I have, point? I have very strong impressions about this and opinions, but I, I, I don't know if I'm in the minority or not. But I kind of feel that Cyborg belongs in the Titans, it's, you know, especially since it was him and Raven and Starfire that kind of ushered in the new era of the Titans. I don't like that. I don't know if I don't like it, but it just doesn't work for me that he's in the Justice League. I'm kind of an old school mm-hmm. JLA, JLU fan, and it just doesn't feel right to me. It feels forced, especially considering they have Black Lightning, Mr. Terrific, John Stewart, you know, yeah. Vic Sid, like so many others that they could have brought in if they were just simply trying to either appeal to or or make it a more diverse cast. Yeah, these are all African American characters. Yes. Or if they were trying to appeal to a younger demographic, I feel there are other characters that could have fit in differently because of their association with the J- now we're now we're now we're geek like getting into the geek right here, right? Yeah. So <laughs> including like the JSA characters who which was about generations and legacy. Yeah. So, you know, why not bring in Stargirl, for example? Why not bring in Jade or Obsidian. I don't. This is just my, you know, my take. Did you ever hear from maybe one of the DC editors why Cyborg kind of got drafted and called up to the main JLA no, team? No, not really. I mean, I'm assuming they thought he was a cool character, mm-hmm. and they thought if we we're going to do a diverse, cool young character, why not Cyborg? Especially considering there was that within the universe that stigma that the Titans were just sidekicks. Right. So I could see the. I see the logic in it. I mean, I, I honestly do. It's just. My heart mm-hmm. <laughs> just doesn't buy it. I don't know. It's just, it's just me. I, I, like I loved what Jeff Johns tried to do with the his reboot of the Titans, where he had Starfire and Cyborg as sort of the mentors of the new generation. Mm-hmm. I love that, but I, can, I again logically, I see why they would graduate them to the JLA or JLU. But there or wasn't really like a moment. Like he didn't have a in the way that like Robin became Nightwing. There was sort of this. There was actual right. like yeah. a transition. That's what but I'm saying. Cyborg that's, didn't have one of those. It was just okay. Yeah. He's in the Justice League right that's now. That's what I'm saying. That's one yeah. part of it. It doesn't. It feels forced. It's not like at least not from my recollection. There was some big event that made him come in and either rescue or become important to the the roster, and then they said, "Come on in." It, it does sound like someone in editorial said, "Let's pick Cyborg," <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? Like, does yeah, that make yeah, sense definitely. to you? I know exactly. So it's what just, it's. I mean, so as a fanboy, as a reader, that's the way I kind of see it. Right. What and again, you- I'd love to see John. I love John Stewart. I want to. Why don't they bring him back? Why didn't they use him as the Green Lantern? I guess. Yeah, there's well, there's still an opening for Green Lantern. That's I, true. I, I yeah, know, that's I, true. They could still introduce him into the this is true. into the cinematic universe. What there was a lot of controversy around, like the look of Cyborg. 
on the trailer in terms of like, oh, oh I don't I know. Hate it. I hate you it. You don't like it? No, it looks like if I hugged them, I would get cut. <laughs> but that you can say that about all their costumes. Right. So, I mean, that's just my opinion. Like, they all look like they were, like the Transformers, Michael Bay's Transformers. Not that you go around hugging, you know, Transformers, but it looks to me like if I tried to put my arms around Batman or Wonder Woman or or Cyborg or even the Flash from those trailers, that I would get hurt. Right. Which doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, that's crazy. You should be able to hug superheroes, right? <laughs> totally. Um, totally. So anyway, that's just me. And I kind of feel like it's a bit, I don't know, just, just that, you don't want to start me on that anti-Zack Snyder rant because I'll be here all day. <laughs> yeah. I just, you know, anyway. It's kind of dark. It's 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 too dark. His, uh, his Yeah, and then, but of course now I'm one of those guys who looks at the trailer and sees the humor and goes, oh, look at him trying to be funny now. <laughs> You're never going to please guys. You know me that way, but we'll see. I mean, I'm. I would want nothing more than that movie to be really good. Mm-hmm. More so the Wonder Woman movie. Like, oh my god, please, please be good. Like, so much is resting. You know, all the world is waiting for you, Wonder Woman. Yeah, I think, right? I think all the fans are praying. I, I think really, like, even yeah. the people that want to hate are, are praying that it's that's really. Good. I, I really, I, I want those movies to be good, but I. You know, I saw that trailer and I couldn't be excited about it. Unlike the way, for example, I reacted to the Civil War trailer. Like, I lost my mind. Like, I was like, no, that's not. You know, it was just the most exciting thing I'd seen at the time. Right. And you would think someone, especially like me, who grew up watching the Super Friends, you know, who's who's who loves the JLU cartoon and all that, loved Justice League comics growing up, would be really excited about that trailer. But I'm like, mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah. You mentioned stigma earlier, and I, and I wondered, like, being known for kids' comics and all-ages comics, do you ever get stigmatized in the sense that, like, you can't graduate in the same way to, like, the bigger universe? Like, does it ever get frustrating? Uh, do you get pigeonholed or typecast? Well, if I have been, I, I, it's not like anybody told me. It's just sort of, <laughs> right. You know, like, if I've ever pitched something and the editor in his or her mind thought, no, nah, he writes kids' stuff better... Like, no one ever told me, right? Mm-hmm. So, I, I I don't know. It's possible because a lot of the work that I do get offered is mostly all ages material, which I'm fine with. Mm-hmm. But I can't remember who said it, but, you know, someone once said to me, it's better to be known for something than nothing. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't really find it frustrating because I don't really aspire to do, you know, like Vertigo books or whatever. I mean, as much as I'd love to, if I had the right thing come along or the right story, the right idea. And not that I don't want to write more mature comics and that sort of thing. Um, but like I said, probably YA is the top end of my my age range and my wheelhouse. And, and I enjoy it. So for now, it's fine. You know, like I, it's not like I'm going after any mainstream books in terms of the work. Does having kids of your own influence you in any way when you're doing an all ages title? I find myself, before I had kids, I was just writing young stories that I kind of wanted to see myself. And then now, with like, for example, the robots, I don't know if I would have written a story about robots if it wasn't for my kids and their fascination with robots at the time. And they actually went around calling each other bro. At, like <laughs> age, at age five and seven, they were calling each other bro. And that what, that's, what, that's how the robots sort of originally came about. So, you know, just everyday things sort of inspire stories but that goes for anybody in my family and they say that about all writers you got to be careful what you say around them because it'll end up in their work what do you prefer do you prefer doing like creator own stuff or do you like doing oh, yeah, like, the much, main universe stuff no much 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 prefer to do my own stuff um because you get to do whatever you want you get to 
make all the creative calls, and you end up owning it at, in the end. Right. Now, of course, the difference is, depending on the work, the licensed stuff, the f- uh, the freelance stuff to work for hire could be more lucrative. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're lucky, you'll you'll create something of your own that sells well or sells well enough or do enough of that kind of work that, you know, that you, you're okay with it. You're okay with it in terms of the, the finances. Um, so it's, it's sort of a tough balance doing the both if you have to or when you can. What is what is your process in terms of when you come up with an idea? How do you pitch? How do you write? Like what? How do you go about doing um, the actual well, creative stuff? What I found in the last few years, especially, is like I mean, I have a bunch of ideas. I'll start writing them out, um, put together. Sometimes I'll just put together a single page, put the idea down. Sometimes I'll go full blown pitch with all the descriptions that you need for the pitch. What I found in the last few years is most of the time something or someone will come along and say, we're looking for X or we we want this kind of uh, graphic novel. Not necessarily genre or content-wise, but in terms of we're looking for like a younger reader's graphic novel. We're looking for, you know, something in the 120, 130 range story-wise. Do you have anything? And then I would pitch whatever I had. So it's been what's been published and what what I'm selling, I guess, for, for lack of a better word, has been dictated by who's come to me we're looking for content. Yeah, and I feel like when you do all-ages comics, which I think the industry hungers for, because I, I think they want to get kids mm-hmm. back back into comics. Like, mostly the people reading comics are, like, you know, people in their 30s or, or late 20s and that sort of thing. So does that open you up to a wider range of publishers like Scholastic yeah. and those sorts of things? Oh, yeah, sorts, for sure. I mean, I was just, that's, that's what I mentioned earlier, yeah. that outside of comics, I haven't, I haven't done a lot of stuff lately, like for Marvel, DC, those guys, because... I've been doing a lot of work for Canadian publishers, children's book publishers, and getting offers to do uh, graphic novels and what, you know, different projects for them, um, which is great. Again, you know, it's been dictated by whoever whoever calls Mm -hmm. with work um, so far. So I'm at a point right now where my next three or four years are going to be about graphic novels for kids because that's what, those are the contracts I've lined up. Right. Of course, if something comes along and someone says, oh, can you write a short story for you know, for us, for this, for that, you know, like for example, the DC holiday special or whatever. I mean, if I, if I have the time, I'll do it for sure. But my focus right now is on the contracts that I've, that I've signed, the, you know, the assignments that I've committed to. Well, it's interesting because you could have like b- bigger relationships with like libraries and things like that. For, oh like, yeah. For, yeah. I mean, know. I've done like in the last five years or so, I've done a lot of traveling to visit schools and libraries. They call, you know, they, they, they invite you out, which is great because, Working in comics is a pretty solitary business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just you and your computer, you and your your um, drawing table, unless you're, you're in a studio, of course. And so it's great to, to get out of the house and, and meet the people who are actually reading your work and um, who are enjoying your um, your comics. Or at the very least, they want to hear what you have to say and want to learn about what your, your comics are about. You've been listening to Speech Bubble. Back after this. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to HarryT.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. Welcome back, and now more Speech Bubble. 
comics initially, like when it first started, it was always thought of as like a children's medium, a kid's medium. Now it's more for adults and teens and it is mainstream pop culture. And the main publishers are trying to find a way to get the next generation involved. If you had a meeting with like the head honchos who are deciding that, what kind of things would you want to see or advice would you give them in terms of getting kids more involved in comics? Uh, I guess it would depend on which companies, but for the most part, I think graphic novels are the way to go. So long form stories versus, you know, the floppies that we see every month. It's just not a thing for this generation. Like even my kids will sometimes pick up, you know, comics that I buy, but they'd much rather sit down with my iPad and blow through six episodes, uh, six issues in one sitting, whether it's, you know, totally awesome Hulk or lumberjanes or whatever. It's just the way they, they, they consume comics. They can't wait a month. Right. Right. I mean, I used to wait a month and hope that maybe the next issue would show up at the corner store. And if not, then I'd have to wait for, you know, another month to see what happens. But I think for the younger generation and we've seen it. I mean, if you look at what was formerly the New York Times bestselling list of graphic novels for for kids, you know, it was stuff that Raina Tuggemeyer did. So not only are we looking for longer form stories, but stories that appeal to girls, Mm -hmm. um, which was ignored. The demographic that was ignored by Marvel and DC for too long. Mm-hmm. They only notice when, you know, one day Tokyo Pop shows up at, at Comic-Con and like all these girls are swarming their booth and everyone's like, what's what's going on here, right? So I think that's that would be my advice is to do more graphic novels, you know, do some aimed at um, specifically at girls, which actually DC's done recently with the uh, superhero girls thing. Yeah. And I hear it's doing really well. So, I mean, that's a good start, but they can do so much more, I think. Yeah, they got a long way to go, you think, in terms of development Um, of the industry? I don't know. I I really don't know what's going on right now, you know, behind the scenes. I see them trying, which is great, Mm. but uh, I don't know if it's a long way. But I think, you know, the thing is, I think we now have a a new generation of comic book readers that are here to stay, and I don't think that's going away. We've got teachers who are uh, okay with graphic novels in the classroom, which is wonderful. Librarians, um, library shelves are filling up with graphic novels. My library back in Whitby, they just moved the adult graphic novels to their own section upstairs because they need more room for the younger readers. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, which is awesome. So I think we did it. You know, like, woohoo, we did it. I think w- w- thanks to the help of um, of librarians and teachers that they were able to capture the market or that demographic that mainstream comics kind of couldn't or forgot about mm-hmm. now you've got these kids who are reading comics similarly to the way that those of us who are making comics read comics so you're going to get a new generation of creators new generation of editors and i think we're going to be okay you That's know awesome. like it's going to keep going until we kill all the trees and there's no paper left <laughs> no, and then we'll just you know read digitally but yeah i think i think we're in good personally i think we're in good shape i think the sales are showing it across the board not necessarily everyone's you know doing well but as you can see, um, like I said, library shelves are, are filling with graphic novels and any brick and mortar stores that do books are are branching out and growing into more graphic novels as well. So, so I think we're in good shape. That's awesome. I, I love uh, ending on optimism, but I wanted to throw uh, out to the audience. And see <laughs> but let's if, not do that. See, see if they had any questions. Um, does, does anybody have any questions for Jay? I think Robin. Oh, yes, Robin. <laughs> Awesome. Hi. Um, so my name is Laura during the day. Don't tell us. I'm a teacher during the day. Don't tell us. <laughs> but um, I'm Robin at night. 
And um, I thought it was really interesting what you were saying about children being more interested in comic books. Um, I've actually seen that in the past few years. Um, I've seen that what before was Elsa and like all that stuff. I've seen that it's skyrocketed out of nowhere where suddenly children are talking more about superheroes. Boys, girls like of all ages are talking about that. This might be too general of a question, but I was wondering how do you think that like publishers and writers in general can kind of balance drawing new people in while also still keeping like the older generation still interested in? Like how do you think, do you think it's about keeping like old characters and kind of making them more child friendly or do you think it's more about inventing new characters so you mean in terms of marvel and dc specifically because of because they're the only ones that really have that built-in readership that's still Well, i've tried to make children like snot girl but that's not happening yeah no no but what i'm saying is just in terms of like servicing the older crowd who wants Mm -hmm. things a certain way and then the new the new kids, mm-hmm. literally, yeah. who who need things a different way. Mm-hmm. It, it, I guess you know. I don't know why. This is actually back to your question. I don't know why they have to be part of the same line. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've noticed recently, but DC has licensed their characters out to different publishers who put out these really cool picture books for kids mm-hmm. with the old school art. I just bought this thing called my first dictionary for for my yeah, six year old. I was just going to talk about that. Yeah. So yeah, if they can do that. And also, like, allow, I don't know who it is, Simon & Schuster or Scholastic to do, um, what is that? Um, I forgot the name. It's like a Gotham, not Gotham Academy, but... um, Oh, I know. Are you talking about Monster High or something? No, it's it's Bruce Wayne and Diana Prince and Clark Kent at boarding school. JLA. No. No, it's Gotham Academy. No, no, that's the no, the comic. No. But it, uh, I forgot what it's called. Like it's, it's 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 they're in boarding school and it's a right. novel with some comic pages. Mm. So my question is if they can do that, if they can license those characters out to different publishers, why force all ages or kid friendly comics within your regular comic line? Like why not just hand it over to Cause I know, Scholastic okay, sorry, yeah. or somebody that yeah. knows how to put out kids' materials or you know whoever it is and say, here you go, here's Batman, Superman, yeah. um, and Wonder Woman. Do some graphic novels for for that demographic that you guys know so well. For sure, because I also see that like a lot of like my fellow colleagues will say that they don't want the children to get into superheroes because of the violence and and stuff like that. So. I think that that's why I think it's so important to balance it, like make them love the characters, but then you can't have sometimes like the dark storyline. Sure. Yeah. That's what I'm saying too. Like, for example, if you're trying to get into this classic book club as a publisher, or as a creator of comics, they're very particular about the amount of violence or the amount Mm -hmm. of sex or the amount of uh, gore. They'll even, if the, even if they like what you're, pitching they like the story or if it's a big hit they'll publish a scholastic edition that's how it works and they'll you know clean it up or whatever so if they're very particular about what goes in the comic why don't you just let them handle the stories themselves they have editors that do that they have artists yeah it would probably run a lot more smoothly right and like i said if they let them do that for picture books and dictionaries and whatever else why not graphic novels and comics it's not like it's going to mess up the continuity of what's going on you know, with um, New 52 or Zero Hour or whatever it is, right? So anyway, that, that's what I would probably... Which is what Disney does. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys know this. So Joe Books has yes. been putting out both reprints and new comics under their line. And Disney just kind of lets them do it because they supposedly, right, know what they're doing in the comic world. And Disney does what they do everywhere else. Mm. Right. Thank you so much. Oh, incidentally, and oh. they do that too with yeah. their uh, classic comics, like the Mickey Mouse Donald Duck. Oh, cool. There's the um, I forgot the Italian studio that does it. 
So anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I think that's the idea. Why not let the people who know comics what they're doing? Yeah, take it over for kids. Do it right. Cool. Does anyone else have a question? Always got a question. Okay, so yesterday we had Chip Zdarsky here. We were talking a bit about Zdarscon. Right, right. So yeah, and, and he was talking about launching that again next year. Are, are you are you going to the Fan Expo? Do you do Fan Expo? And if not, what do you think about jumping on a tour bus with Chip Zdarsky oh and other God. crazy people and driving around Fan Expo? And I uh, I do Fan Expo every now and then. Right. I'm not big on the big cons anymore. I don't know right. what it is. And crowds. Like, You're hearing I, a yes I, out of this, maybe. No. I, uh, <laughs> I was gonna, my other part was, I, I don't like crowds, also I'm lazy. So that was... That we'll was come the, pick you up on a tour bus. That was, the second, <laughs> that was the second excuse. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I prefer... I'm not big on the bigger shows. I remember going to San Diego. I, it was, it's been five years now. And I just... I couldn't handle... It was nuts. And you couldn't... You couldn't step outside and not bump into a thousand people you know, they won't let thing? you back in yeah if yeah if you're unlucky yeah but anywhere any, anyway so fan expo has become that which is good and great for what they're doing but as far as what i like to do it's just not my favorite thing but i don't know maybe the tour bus i don't know is there like is there like is there gonna be like snacks yeah well the the, the idea is is <laughs> that chip and and other creators who feel the same way about fan expo will get into a rented bus and then drive around and will pick up people from outside the show and have little intimate gatherings as they drive around the convention and then they'll let those people off and let a few more people on. That's hilarious. Yeah, I'm going to try and rope Dave Sim in too. He got his 2,000 oh signatures. <laughs> he's now out of his self-imposed exile. Right, right. So it could be a lot of fun. That would be a great reality show. Me, Dave Sim, and Chips Zdarsky. <laughs> like, that would be like the real world. And the spider on the wall. But just... Or like Big Brother, but probably too geeky and maybe a little bit boring, but for some people might be fun. Yeah, totally. Cool. Well, thanks, Leon. Um, does anyone else... We, we still have some time for questions, if anyone has any. So I'm just going to ask like a pretty vanilla question here. Um, how old were you when you first started writing and, and getting involved with comics? Um like, did you go to school for it? Well, or? as a kid, I was always drawing and 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 writing stories. Um, and then I, as, and as I mentioned, I did a comic strip for the school paper when I was in the third grade. Okay. So it's been, you know, I've been doing it for forever. You know, as for as long as I can remember. Um, but professionally, or attempting to be professional, probably around my senior year in high school, first year of university, that's when I really started to try. Right, right. And sending out pitches and looking up, uh, going to the library and looking at um, the writer's market guide and looking at, you know, names so of how, publishers. How, how does, like, how do you enter that market? Like, you said that that's when you started. Do you, like, create a portfolio and you, you just send it to Marvel, like a random email address that you well, dug not, up on the back internet? Well, in back in the day, they, that was a thing, but not, not anymore. So now, okay, so if you're a writer, the thing you have to do, especially if you're, if you're aspiring to do work for Marvel, DC, Dark Horse, like the bigger guys, you got to get published elsewhere. And that includes self-publishing. I mean, you can do a webcomic. Right? right, like that's what Chip was saying. That he, right. he did his own like comic that sure, he self-funded, yeah. and that's kind of how it grew up. Right, right. So again, like it's like being you know uh, a garage band and doing right. So I the mean, what car advice, dealership what, what owner, advice you would know? you give to like a budding artist? Like what 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 should they be aspiring to do? You said to get self-published, but it's kind of like 
how do you go even about contacting a smaller publisher? Same way as you would right. the, Yeah, the, I mean, the same way. I mean, you would go online, look up these publishers and look up their submissions guidelines. Everybody's okay. very particular. You know, some of them want to see five pages of this or five pages of that. Some don't want to see anything. They just want you to send them a link to your online portfolio. Okay. Or your Deviant Art page to see what, what you've got. Right. Others need you to go to a convention, line up, get a ticket, and by lottery get chosen to sit down with an editor. And I'm not joking. This is a true this is a true true story. This is a thing that DC and Marvel do at conventions. Guys and girls will line up and get like either a wristband. So it's almost like they're making money off doing this by like funding like two, three people and like a thousand show well, up to I, go and do this, buy tickets for the event. Yeah, blah, blah, well blah. it's it's free actually, except okay. for the fact that you gotta get into the convention. Right, that's what I'm right, saying. Okay, yeah. So th- that part's not free. No. I mean there's people probably just paying for the ticket for that. Sure, part sure. Alone. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. This is true. But you know nothing you could do is go to local shows network with local creators and you never know i mean i've i've recommended people to other writers who recommend them to other publishers you never know right right and you might have a style that somebody i know just happens to be looking for it's just one of those things right so you just, hear about these stories just luck of the draw just jam as many yeah uh, i mean it's sort of like right place right time yeah right. and okay. plus if you have an online presence that's the easiest thing to get your work out there you could right. just put your your url on a business card and just you know, with a little image that makes people look I at it. it. Yeah, I get it. The yeah. scene is also really, really strong in Toronto, like the the indie scene. And there's a lot of creators who do regular meetups and jams, and right? Right, it's true. Like actual graphic novels have come out of 24 hour comic days and things That's like true. and things like that. So I would just network among the artists and stuff that are in Artist Alley and like come to their next jam, and you'll collaborate with people who've who've done it before, who have kickstarted projects before. And things okay. like that. Okay. Right, yeah. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. <laughs> okay, guys. Uh, I think we're almost getting to uh, 3 o'clock. So um, I think um, Jay is going to be signing some books. So I, I really want to thank you guys for, for coming out. I want to thank Leon for putting this on. It was, it's was been an honor to celebrate your 25th anniversary. I want to thank Alex Ross and Never Sleeps Network for producing. And uh, I want to thank the audience for coming out and uh, hearing about us. If you want to hear more of our episodes, go to NeverSleepsNetwork.com. And Jay, thank you so much for My taking the pleasure. time to do this. This is My awesome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you, Leon. Thank you, Harry Tarantula. And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.